0: 50 years ago the armies of egypt and syria launched a surprise attack on israeli forces in the sinai desert and golan heights it was on this very day of yom kippur in 1973. israel suffered terrible losses especially in those initial days American Jews awakened to war. Rabbis hurriedly adjusted their Yom Kippur messages. Israeli soldiers on the front lines were ordered to break their fast. Reservist names were read from the pulpit. In one synagogue, a young man stood when his name was called. His father embraced him and refused to let go. The rabbi descended from the bimah and quietly said, My friend... Your son's place is not here on this holy day. I recall my parents' worry. I did not share their concern. At the age of nine, I had already imbibed the legends of Israel's bravado and its six-day war successes. I did not understand their fear. From day one, I had confidence that Israel would be victorious in the face of even unimaginable odds. It was led by Golda Meir and Moshe Dayan, of course. I believed Israel would prevail quickly and decisively. The war lasted for nearly three terrible weeks. In the end, and in part because of an American airlift of supplies, Israel pushed the Egyptians beyond the Suez Canal and the Syrians from the Golan. Nearly 2,700 Israelis were killed, And over 7,000 injured. The Egyptian and Syrian war dead were estimated in the tens of thousands. Our enemies attacked us on the holiest day of the year. We, however, prevailed. Or this is how we like to tell this story. This is how we like to hear the tale. Our enemies are evil. We are righteous. They are unimaginative we are ingenious, they are treacherous, and we are forever faithful. The Yom Kippur War seemed to confirm everything we believed about our enemies. The truth, however, is not always as we tell it. The truth is far more complicated. Myth is neat and tidy. They are the stories we tell nine-year-olds. History is messy. The Yom Kippur War was in fact a terrible military blunder. Go see the movie Golda to learn more. But in a nutshell, Israeli leaders were not as surprised as we like to believe. The Mossad had clear evidence that Egypt's attack was imminent. Golda Meir and Israel's leaders hesitated to call up all the reserves. Moshe Dayan was in particular complacent. Others were overconfident. The secret listening devices that Israeli commandos had risked their lives to install in Egypt and that would have given Israel the exact timing of the attack were not turned on for fear of being detected. Israelis' leaders were blinded by arrogance and even at times negligence. Had they called up the reserves a few days earlier, the tragic cost to Israel would have been far less. Soldiers lost their lives because their leaders delayed. I know. We don't like to say such things out loud. We prefer to idealize our heroes. We mythologize the past. Truth-telling, however, is how we better ourselves, especially on this day of Yom Kippur. In Israel, the trauma of the Yom Kippur War is still discussed and the mistakes that were made are openly debated. The Agronaut Commission, established soon after the war, investigated the debacle and insisted that the IDF Chief of Staff, David Elazar, be dismissed. Mass protests forced Prime Minister Golda Meir and Defense Minister Moshe Dayan to resign. Here, we paper over the foibles and hubris of Israeli leaders. We want Israel to fit neatly into our myth-making and storytelling. And so, on this day, I am thinking more about our inability to speak about past mistakes rather than the mistakes themselves. I am thinking more about our unwillingness to speak uncomfortable truths, most especially about what we hold dear, Exactly when we need to dig deeper into our flaws, we start mythologizing even more. Look at the discussions here about the American sin of slavery as an example. It is changing before our eyes from a story not about oppression and subjugation, but instead into, well, that's how things were back then. Or in the eyes of some even, Actually, blacks learned beneficial skills on plantations. Look to our nation's forefathers. On a recent trip to Washington, D.C., Representative Steve Israel, who knows a great deal of American history, taught us that George Washington always grimaced, not because of the myth we were all taught that he was outfitted with false wooden teeth, but because he wore teeth taken from enslaved blacks. In some instances, they were even taken from the people while they were still alive. Reckoning with the past in an honest way that confronts the ugliness and even, yes, the evils of our historic wrongs is the only way we become a better nation. We think the notion that acknowledging past wrongs makes us less great when, in fact, it makes us even greater. These truths should be part of every single curriculum. Just because these facts make us uncomfortable are no reason reason to shy away from airing them. That's exactly when we should be talking about them. Sure, it might make you uncomfortable and might even produce feelings of guilt. But guess what? Guilt is the feeling of the soul that wants to make amends and do better guilt is not debilitating but instead ennobling it is about the soul's realization that it has fallen short until we acknowledge the ugly truths standing before us we cannot better ourselves we cannot ensure that israel live up to its democratic ideals in the mouths of israel's current leaders Democracy has become not a bedrock foundational principle, but a useful tool to create the Third Jewish Commonwealth. And I am wondering about our inability to confront this ugly truth. Why can't American Jews mouth the words, Prime Minister Netanyahu is wrong? His attempts to remove judicial oversight over legislators' lawmaking is a betrayal of Israel's ideals, why can't we say many of the lawmakers in the current ruling coalition represent views that are antithetical to the values we cherish, namely pluralism and tolerance. They do not respect differences, whether they be those of reformed Jews, women, LGBTQ Israelis, or neighboring Muslims. We are unable to shout. These Knesset members see democratic elections as a tool to foist their fundamentalist views on others. They do not view democracy as a principle by which to organize their lives and protect the rights of those with whom they disagree or even with those they do battle with. These are the words we should be saying and we seem unable to do so. Bibi is, after all, the prime minister of the Jewish state, and the Jewish state is arguably our people's greatest success. We are terrified to criticize our beloved Israel. Apac, the defender of Israel in the US Congress, and whose advocacy I support, studiously avoids offering public criticism of Netanyahu's government. Recently, it offered only lukewarm platitudes, applauding Israel's vibrant internal debates while reserving fire only for Israel's external threats. But what of the organization's arguments that is our shared democratic values that bind America to Israel and that guarantees America's continued support of Israel's defense. In our imaginations, Israel appears to represent not some real place, but instead a repository of our dreams. We worry that our truth telling will make common cause with Israel's enemies and our anti-Semitic haters. We become despondent that our loving critiques will unfetter the already weak bonds our children feel towards Israel. We deflect and say things like, Israel is fighting against countless enemies and not just those on its borders. Or look at some of the speakers from this weekend's conference at the University of Pennsylvania. Or can you believe the double standard the United Nations applies to Israel? And so when we need to be talking and debating our own present flaws, we double down on our enemies' and haters' injustices. We turn away from the uncomfortable. We look back to yesteryear. And instead of confronting today's ugly truths, we find solace in our myths. And we even start rewriting past wrongs. And then it occurs to me, We've been doing this for a long, long time. Take but one example from our history and tradition. King David is the greatest of kings. David, Melchizedek, everybody knows that, right? Okay. David, the king of Israel, lives and lives forever. He was a mighty warrior and a fierce general. David led the Israelites in battle and most importantly united the southern and northern kingdoms. He established Jerusalem as our eternal capital. He authored the book of Psalms. He is revered as the line from which the Messiah will one day come and save the world. As Shabbat leaves and we extinguish the Havdalah candle, we sing Eliyahu Hanavi. We invite Elijah's presence who will announce the coming of the Messiah. May he soon come in our own day with the Messiah, Ben David. Imashiach ben David, and yet, if you read the Bible, as many of us did this past year, you quickly discover that the David Melech myth does not exactly match the man. David is guilty of adultery and murder. He sleeps with Bathsheba while her husband Uriah is fighting the king's wars, and then, when he becomes, she becomes pregnant, has his loyal soldier. Murdered by instructing his commanders to leave Uriah unprotected and alone when facing the enemy. And what happens next? The prophet Nathan marches into the palace, confronts David, and castigates the king. When looking at the Bible, David seems like the most unlikely of figures to give rise to the future redemption. Then again, perhaps redemption is discovered more in the prophet Nathan's truth-telling than the David Melech myth we so love to sing about. Somehow, David emerges unblemished and untarnished after millennia of storytelling. People choose to forget the biblical tale. And in truth, his unified Jewish kingdom only lasts 33 years. Even his greatest success is short-lived. The modern state of Israel is now 75 years old. It stands on precarious footing. Its democracy appears fragile. Of course there are legitimate criticisms of Israel's judicial system. But to remove the only check and balance that Israel's system offers is antithetical to its democratic foundations. When the State of Israel was established, its first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, authored the Declaration of Independence. That document states the State of Israel will be based on freedom, on justice, and on peace as envisaged by the prophets of Israel. It will ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or sex. It will guarantee freedom of religion, conscience, language, education, and culture. But those beautiful and inspiring words never, never gain the force of law. Ben-Gurion, in fact, resisted attempts to call a constitutional convention and enshrine these words as law. And who stood in opposition to the Ben-Gurion we so often idealize? Menachem Begin. He argued and lost for the need to write a constitution that would guarantee Israel's democracy. Begin said, we have learned that an elected parliamentary majority can be an instrument in the hands of a group of rulers and act as camouflage for their tyranny. Begin rightly believed the majority can have anti-democratic impulses. He understood that democracies are not so much about majority rule, but instead about ensuring the rights of all citizens. They are about protecting minorities with as much vigor as rulers think about this the man who founded the very party that bibi netanyahu now leads was israel's greatest proponent of democracy the man who is responsible for leading israelis to independence and nationhood crushed early attempts to write a constitution history is oh so messy ponder this fact Begin. The guy who ordered the blowing up of the King David Hotel when it served as the headquarters for the British mandate was democracy's greatest advocate, and Ben-Gurion, the revered founder of the modern state, the authoritarian silent accomplice. Truth is never so tidy. It does not fit into the compartments we like to build. It does not square with the stories we so love to tell. On this Yom Kippur, I am holding on to the image of two Israeli flags. In one, I am looking towards East Jerusalem, the territory captured by Israel in its six-day war victory. And I see there an oversized Israeli flag hanging from a Jewish home in the Arab village of Silwan that sits alongside the old city's dung gate. The flag can be seen for miles. The right-wing Jewish residents hope their flag will overshadow their opponents and their apartments will soon overwhelm those of the Arab villagers, many of whom have lived there for generations. In another, I look out at Tel Aviv's Kaplan intersection on any Saturday night over the course of the past 38 weeks. There are tens of thousands of Israelis protesting the Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul. They stand in what the Tel Aviv municipality has now renamed Democracy Square. The majority of Israelis support the protesters' views. A significant percentage of Israelis, including those from the right and the left, secular and religious, Air Force pilots and leading scientists, have all participated in these protests week after week. They believe that the ruling coalition does not have the power to change Israel's fundamental character. Many of these protesters have literally wrapped themselves in Israeli flags. They see their protests as expressions of their patriotism. Which flag do you choose? Which Israel do you wish to support? we can no longer have both. We can no longer sip coffee in Tel Aviv's cafes or stroll Jerusalem's beautiful promenades while ignoring the other Israel that is being fashioned a few short miles away. The current government harbors Jewish racists. Itamar Ben-Gvir, whose extremist views and violent activities deemed him unfit for army service. Cares little for the rights of Israel's Palestinian minority and only about Jewish sovereignty. Last year, in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Jerusalem, he told the police they should shoot Palestinians if they throw stones at Jewish settlers. He said, We're the landlords here now. This leader speaks in the name of a tradition I hold dear. This man is now the minister in charge of the police. Imagine an Israel where a Ben Gvir gains even greater power. We should worry about an Israel without the check and balance that judicial oversight offers. We need to choose which Israeli flag with which to wrap ourselves. They are no longer one and the same. The idea that we can remain on the sidelines, and that we are better served by remaining neutral, has passed. The notion that this is only a debate for Israelis is no longer relevant or meaningful. Israel is a project of the Jewish people. The Jewish and democratic state of Israel needs us to stand with its protesters and for democracy. Love of Israel means standing for its democratic ideals. Israel does not just need us to make sure the IDF has its best armaments or its right to defend itself is upheld in the college campus. It needs us. It desperately needs us to stand up for its democratic values and founding principles. Some of those sitting on the other side of this debate will say, democracy is not even a Jewish idea. There is no real Hebrew word for it. Rabbis should not even be talking about this. It is a foreign idea implanted within the hearts of liberal Jews they will offer. We must respond, our people's greatest successes Here in America, with the most vibrant Jewish diaspora history has ever known, and there in Israel, with the reestablishment of our Jewish homeland, in the face of unimaginable odds, are made possible by democracy. We must offer this honest retort. Some of our greatest hopes emerge from the outside. Back to King David from whom the Messiah will descend. Guess what? His great-grandmother is Ruth, who out of great affection for her mother-in-law Naomi and out of love for God and the Jewish people, chooses to become a Jew. She is born a Moabite, one of ancient Israel's foremost and avowed enemies. Take this to heart. There is a direct line A direct line from our past enemy to our future redeemer. Look at the twists and turns of history. Behold the convoluted paths of our stories. How messy. How imperfect. And yet Judaism embraces this imperfection. Our tradition teaches that we can be simultaneously imperfect and great. That's what these days are all about. To be great does not mean to be flawless. Myth-making lessens us. Truth-telling uplifts us. And truth-telling is what upholds this fragile human project called democracy. A nation requires truth-telling more than myth-making. And so one final true story. When the Yom Kippur War broke out, a young Leonard Cohen who wrote that hallelujah song so familiar to us and so beloved to us, jumped on an airplane. He felt called to be with Israel in its pain. He traveled to the front lines of the Sinai Desert with a few musicians and performed impromptu concerts for the soldiers, many of whom later reported they believed this would be the last songs they would ever hear they thought their lives were lost his concerts were not widely publicized but the soldiers who attended and who managed to survive the war remember them to this day and there he wrote who by fire a song based on the high holiday prayer unatana tokef Let us proclaim the power of this day. On Rosh Hashanah, this is written. On the fast of Yom Kippur, this is sealed. Who shall live and who shall die? Cohen reimagines the prayer of his childhood and sings, and who by fire, who by water, who by brave ascent, and who by accident, who in solitude, who in this mirror, who by his lady's command, who by his own hand, who in mortal chains, who in power, and who shall I say is calling? Indeed, who shall I say is calling? It is time, my friends, for us to hear the call. It is time for us to stand for an Israel we can believe in. It is time for us to stand up for a democratic state of Israel that serves as a homeland for the Jewish people and a guarantor of the rights of its minorities the Tokev prayer continues and so a great shofar will sound Tekia, and a still small voice will be heard it is time for us to answer this call a nation is lessened by myth it is bettered by truth-telling